Welcome to Past Perfect by CEU Medieval Radio. You're listening to an episode from our archives. For more recent episodes, head to podcast.ceu.edu. And if you want to keep up with the latest news about us, follow us on Facebook at CEU Medieval Radio, or visit our website at medievalradio.org. Thanks. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hi, I'm Christopher Melka, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Dr. Otto Getcher, um, a medieval medical historian currently at the Faculty of Social Sciences at ELTA, at Wischlerand University in Budapest. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. So, medical history. The one thing that I have to ask is that the sort of conception I think a lot of people have out there is that uh, the Middle Ages were a very dirty, smelly, stinky time in people only took baths once a year, if that. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing, I mean, which applies generally to many misconceptions about the Middle Ages, that we tend to think about the Middle Ages as something that ended 500 years ago, and all these misconceptions ended 500 years <laughs> ago. Um, whereas uh, in most cases, uh, where we, when we attribute some, some um, misconception to the Middle Ages, all these misconceptions, if they are true, or if they are partly true, they apply to, I don't know, late 19th century too. I mean, uh, if cleanliness means uh, smelling of, of deodorants and uh, <laughs> bathing uh, every day and taking a shower every day or twice a day and so on and so forth, this is something which is very new. And uh, the main reason for this, or one of the necessary conditions for this is of course having bathrooms and um, uh, most people having bathrooms which is relatively new very new right right so this was something surely um uh lacking in the middle ages um as it was in the late 19th century as well in the first half of the 20th century as well in uh, in countries like uh, uh Hungary and uh, all, all parts of uh uh, Eastern <coughs> Europe, I think it p still applied in in the 60s, in uh, 70s, in for most people living in rural areas. So, uh, if if the Middle Ages was dirty, then it it lasted until <laughs> the 1960s or uh, the 1940s. But um, on the other hand, uh, um, dirt cer certainly meant something else, and in dirt means many things in in, in different cultures. So, I mean. Uh, body smell was certainly there. I mean, mm -hmm. wh what we want to avoid at any cost. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, but dirt in the sense of uh, being, um, being smeared with earth and mud and the like was mm -hmm. not there. So they tried to avoid it if they could. Okay, well, I can, I can certainly uh, believe that our attitudes towards hygiene and cleanliness have changed, you know, not even in the past century, even in the past, you know, 20, 30 years. But um, at the same time, 
just very general question. How did people take care of um, themselves uh, in the Middle Ages? What were considered good hygienic practices if you didn't, if you weren't in this um, atmosphere of, you know, bathing every day and using whatever brand toothpaste constantly? <laughs> well, with this question, we are into medical history because what we know more securely about such things apply to those people who who recur to the assistance of of, uh, of doctors because uh, the main goal of doctors or the main task of doctors at least of university educated doctors of the middle ages was to prescribe regimens that is uh, advice general advice about lifestyle to their uh, Patrons, so the the at least the ideal case for a university educated doctor was to to be employed in a big noble household or ecclesiastical household, and there to take care for m- members of the family. And taking care meant first of all uh, prophylactic, preventive uh, advice, and such advice always included uh, advice about bathing, uh, because. Uh, in medieval medicine, uh, <clears throat> the I- basic idea was about health is that uh, that uh, various aspects of the environment, uh, including food, what you take, and sexual life, uh, bathing, and the like, uh, were affecting various balances in the body and in the organs. The the, the sort of four humors type yeah, of Yeah, exactly. The four humors, or more precisely, in, in the, uh, this humoral medicine was a bit modified uh, in um, in the Middle Ages, in, at least in the period when, when uh, doctors could study at universities. And it was combined with Aristotelian natural philosophy, which... Uh, is based on the the idea of the four elementary qualities uh, dry wet hot and cold and all parts of the body have a have a specific characteristic balance of these uh, qualities and uh, all contact with the environment modifies uh, these balances not generally not only generally the balance of the body in these terms but uh, of specific organs so the stomach for example when you eat that's the first uh, the, the organ affected first and uh, bathing was for example something that on the one hand was warm I mean uh, it made whole, whole body warmer just like sexuality sexual mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. it was always the advice always took into consideration the age of the person because age was also related to uh, um, processes in terms of these elementary qualities aging meant first of all drying out so the <laughs> <laughs> the the cause of death in the aristotelian uh, tradition of natural philosophy was m- practically drying out i guess that's why botox is so popular nowadays <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah so that's 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 where usually bathing comes in so then advice about in which season for which age which sex um uh, people are uh, uh are to to be supposed to to take baths and and women were seen as being more watery than yeah, men and were. colder than than men i see i see um uh, getting back to something that you said before um we, we started talking about the four humors um 
it about the, it's about the university educated doctors. I know that in the 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 very high middle ages, the sort of period that we tend to think of you know associate with all this courtly love and yeah. hundred years war type that the main medical universities in Europe at that time were mostly um in Italy uh Bologna I'd imagine yeah well I mean if we put courtly love or the flourishing of courtly love in the 12th century uh-huh. I mean if we do uh-huh. uh or or uh, late uh, uh, 11th uh then uh then there is no university training yet in in the sense oh, okay. as it appeared in the th- 13th century so uh there was it's true uh, that italy was was leading in 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 the formal education of d- doctors mm-hmm. i mean as c- uh, contrasted to uh to various lower level practitioners lower level in terms of prestige and maybe income certainly certainly prestige uh, who were not uh who did not receive any formal education so who are just educated by a master uh just like any artisan mm-hmm. so the formal education theoretical formal education of doctors f- f- appeared first in Italy that's that's true and Salerno the Salerno school so, yeah. was uh, uh, uh the leading institution although it was not really a university if a university means something like Paris and Bologna in a later period right right um so for um okay well the reason i ask is um it, it's about the the these the sort of artisan level um, medical practitioners um so they they'd be apprenticed out i would imagine well the i mean of course we know much less about non-university okay. doctors because they left i mean uh, much less written material behind them uh we do m- much more about such practitioners later on in the from the 16th century onwards when uh, mm. when the when the influence and the prestige of the university started to diminish and then other people without a degree uh were more likely to venture into writing about their medical practice um and then we know more about what they thought about medicine so maybe paracelsus is the best known uh practitioner in the 16th century who was not university trained and not uh, not a university professor so uh, and there were many such practitioners in the from the 16th century onwards but uh, there were surely in the middle ages we know something about them from licensing records so the medical licensing started already in the late 12th century uh, uh uh kings in the first place in in uh and interestingly in in uh, southern europe uh, and especially in places where there were takeovers of of uh, rulership of of power uh like in spain from mm-hmm. the muslims uh in in northern uh spain and uh and also in sicily and and in the uh, kingdom of naples and we have also information f- uh, regarding medical licensing from the kingdom of jerusalem mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, so and these medical licensing records say something about those practitioners who were not uh university trained but uh, most of what we know about medieval medicine is is, is about uh, university trained physicians if we if thinking about 
medical theory and uh, even medical practice influenced by this theory. Of course, we know about herbal uh, lore. So I mean, okay. uh, that's some some other that's another tradition which was more or less independent of university medicine handed down in in monasteries, uh, which was uh, which was not necessarily affected by any theory so it's a sort sort of common sense knowledge about uh, about the uses of herbs of various plants uh, which i mean reach back to i don't know um, prehistorical times maybe it's difficult to to follow them yeah i i can i can i can imagine it would it would be very difficult to research that sort of thing um I I also have to ask about tools of the trade. I mean, um, it it, it came to me while uh, you were talking about the the, the license aspect mm-hmm. uh, of of these these non university trained professionals. What sort of what sort of objects would a a, a, a medieval doctor have um, in order to I don't know take care of the patients. Yes, it's a maybe. I, I, would, um, I, I don't think that I know all misconceptions about medieval medicine, uh-huh. uh, but uh, it may be one misconception uh, to uh, conflate uh, the doctor with the surgeon, which were very much separate in the well, period. Yes. And uh, if one thinks of medieval medicine in terms of afflicting pain in the, <laughs> in the patient, <laughs> then uh, whether it's true or not, it applies to first of all to the surgeon who was not a uni- usually not a university trained person so the it, surgery was not part of university training uh, and uh, it was it was a, a, the activity of an artisan surgeons were artisans and they had those tools maybe mm-hmm. i mean uh, what we would associate with medieval medicine the the, the doctor who aimed at internal medicine so the the normal university trained physician uh was maybe the the main attribute was a a flask filled with urine oh okay uh, that's uroscopy the mm. the inspection or the the study of of uh, of urine was the main attribute of 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 medieval doctors so usually they are i mean if if we if try to think of representations of doc- visual representations, then similarly to saints, <laughs> which where each saint has uh, has an attribute, uh, Lucy the eyes and, yeah. and the like, <laughs> uh, then uh, doctors have this flask. So that's that's maybe the most characteristic I- instrument of doctors. So it, and w- would would your analysis sort of be a way to gauge um, a person's um, humor? The, the state of their humors is is that sort of why they uh would would be holding these flasks of urine up to the light and examining them uh, yeah exactly so there were uh, treatises of uroscopy and what to look for in the in the color and and uh, the, the 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 texture of uh of the urine somewhat <laughs> somewhat dif- somewhat similar to to uh uh, wine uh, inspection today, you know. I mean, something that I mean, if you if you think of, I mean, it it may okay. <laughs> <laughs> even if the parallel may may sound absurd, but well, you I swirl mean, it around. Yeah, and not not just not just the the activity itself, but y- if you think of the metaphors, they I mean, uh, uh, 
wine uh, connoisseur try to uh, describe wine with no i mean they are sometimes okay. very funny and and <laughs> for the un uh, for the outsider look very much far fetched from the material no that sure, it has sure, sure. i don't know the uh, a taste of of raspberry <laughs> and and blackcurrant and it's with a touch er- of whatever <laughs> and it's then, an earthy vintage <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i mean uh, and uh, in this respect, somewhat similar. So they developed a, a vocabulary which sounds strange uh, for us who who don't try to <laughs> describe urine. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, continuing on, on with our uh, previous conversation, I I have to ask uh, one thing. Uh, bath. Well, bathrooms and toilets in the Middle Ages. I mean. Um, it, it, it's hard for most people used to indoor plumbing um, to imagine sort of uh, what people did uh, when it came to uh, um, having to go to the, go to the the bathroom, so to speak. Uh, so, uh, how did how how did latrines and sort of toilets like that function, or did they have them at all? <laughs> well, uh, again, we have to talk a bit about uh, generally these misconceptions so we uh, already mentioned okay. the problem of uh, of not being able to situate uh, in history the middle ages i mean thinking sure, about sure, the middle sure. ages as, as an enclosed uh, period where uh, which ended absolutely without any trace practically in with the renaissance, renaissance and then uh, what is modern is completely different Definitely. and there is another problem not on, only about with with the middle ages or with misconceptions about the middle ages but with other misconceptions about historical period is that people whereas in the present is are able to make social differences i mean uh, thinking in terms of social categories and strata and so on and so forth in the past we tend to think uh, about uh, life very Generally, that the Middle Ages oh, people right. live like this or that. It's mm-hmm. it's always useful to think ab- about this. That uh, just like today, people have very different lifestyles, no? and and, and, and even in the Middle Ages, society was uh, stratified and and differentiated according to very different groups. I, it's enough to think about think of monks and friars having a lifestyle very different from. Uh, others and then cities and within the cities there were very different groups and so on and so forth so uh, what we what surely uh, the way uh, how uh, such necessities were managed uh, in rural areas was uh, very different from uh, from uh, uh, the urban upper strata and even from uh, uh, the nobility, the landed nobility. In Italy, for example, we still can observe uh, <coughs> uh, working uh, toilets from the 15th century, for example, oh, in cool. Florence, uh, in, uh, in, a, in a Florentine uh, palace. Uh, so uh, surely there were toilets and those who can, could afford separating filth. So, I mean, Filth uh, excrements were not attractive, of course, for <laughs> medieval men <laughs> either. So, uh, um, in most cultures, in general, people try to separate what they think filthy 
from what they think as clean. Right. Uh, so, uh, but it's it just like bathing. It has a very important uh, economic component. So, I mean, uh, sure. you have to be able to afford the facilities which uh, separate filth better than just going to the uh, uh, f- back of the garden and do it there. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, <coughs> So that's that's the I mean for those who could afford it just like in the case of bathing there there were such facilities. Okay. Um it, uh, and maybe I'm sorry if No, go right ahead. Um there is another aspect of this filth management in the Middle Ages so I mean uh in in relation to epidemics for example one can think of uh um, the Middle Ages Maybe many people think of the Middle Ages as not filthy just in the in the personal sense that people did not uh, take baths uh, or showers uh, very frequently, but also uh, uh, in terms of dirty streets where uh, excrements are just poured out and, and yeah. so on and so forth. Um, <coughs> I mean, uh, city uh, uh, leadership... In Italy, uh, the the the, the <coughs> were uh, absolutely aware of this problem. So, uh, from even before the Black Death in the early 14th century, late 13th century in Italy, we see uh, the gradual appearance of regulations about uh, uh, cleanliness of, of of the streets. So the human filth. Mm-hmm. excrements is one problem an even bigger problem in fact because uh, I mean uh, human excrements are not <laughs> very big in quantity so I mean mm-hmm. in, in, as compared to, to animal excrements so I mean animals have to be brought into the city for the butchers Okay, and so they they also leave their filth on the streets and then in uh, a comparably big problem is what to do with the carcasses and there were various remnants of of the animal mm-hmm. not uh, consumed even uh, even if people in the middle ages in, in those who who could afford uh, eat f- meat frequently they tried to use as much of the animal as, uh, sure, as they could sure. but nevertheless there are bones and and so on and so forth and uh, that is one of the main targets of of uh, of the ad- city urban administrations of the of the middle ages uh, f- starting in italy but th- later on in other parts of europe as well what to do with the carcasses whether you can uh, throw it into a, into a ditch where this ditch should be and how how this should be related to the to the waterways and and mm-hmm. the water supplies and other important thing and the third problem related to uh, urban cleanliness and thus related to epidemics, uh, I will come back to this uh, okay. from a medical point of view as well, is the problem of the of, of uh, the trades, of the various uh, trades which create pollution in, um, in the modern sense. So, for example, textile trade in, in, uh, in Italy, which made many of Italian cities, but also in, in Flanders, the city is rich, mm-hmm. is very pollutive. So, I mean, uh, dyeing the, the, the fabrics and also uh, <coughs> uh, 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 cleaning them and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The, pr- the procedure of uh, 
uh, usually involves soaking. I mean, uh, whether you you work with uh, wool and you want to extract uh, lanolin and other parts, or whether you worked with uh, linen uh, and so on and so forth, needed soaking, and and then it produced produced uh, various uh, stinking uh, liquids, which had they had to get to rid of somehow, and. Uh, mainly the the rivers were used for this uh, right <laughs> and the <laughs> cities which did not have a river could not afford uh, uh, a textile industry like Siena became very much involved in in uh, in in financial business because they did oh. not have water uh, in in contrast to Florence or Prato Prato or uh, mm. and other uh, <coughs> other cities so uh this is a third aspect of uh, where 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 uh, urban uh, authorities try to secure uh, at least a, a a less pollutive uh way of uh, handling things that's that's definitely very consistent what i know of about medieval cities because um you see all over europe complaints where people have to live next to butchers I mean, butchers could be some of the richest town residents, but no one wanted to live next to them. Uh, tanners were another thing because um, um, they had to use urine to soak the hides and to cure them. So it was a very, very, very smelly process. Usually they tried to keep the tanners as far away from the city center as possible. And um, even even this extends to very noisy crafts like um, bell-making I mean, you obviously needed bells for churches, but it's something that, again, no one wanted to live uh, uh, live next to them. So, I think uh, that uh, that 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 makes uh, a lot of sense in terms of uh, well, handling waste and handling sort of uh, quality of life uh, aspects in, in in an urban environment. Um, one other aspect related both to the urban environment and uh, to medicine that I want to talk about is um, hospitals. Um, uh, most medieval cities had, um, well, the, the very the bigger ones um, could have several uh, hospitals. Um, uh, how did they function, and, and what did they do? Well, hospitals were quite different from what we tend to think about hospitals today okay. because hospitals are today sort of the the centers of medicine or medical learning uh, usually connected to universities or the most important hospitals but even if not uh, then uh, hospitals are places where the most trained doctors work no i mean in contrast to uh, uh, private uh, practices where where uh, <coughs> where one doctor is only available. So in the hospital, we have a concentration of doctors, specialists, the best ones, but most very trained, and so on and so forth. W- it was not the case in the, the Middle Ages. So medicine was uh, very much separate from the hospitals, not entirely. So there were okay. there were doctors here and there in various bigger hospitals, uh, but uh, the m- mostly doctors uh, w- did not work in hospitals because hospitals were rather in the first place, uh, f- uh, institutions created to take care of the poor or people who could not take care of themselves. So uh, they were mainly charitable 
institutions, not institutions of professional healing. And um, nevertheless, there were several kinds of hospitals. So, I mean, or or the the if we render this term to mean all places where poor uh, sick people or or gen- or even just sick people could go then we have to include for example laparoseries which were quite different oh yes okay uh, kinds of institutions uh, where they could have in the later middle ages at least more medical surveillance um and then uh, there are various smaller pl- infirmaries which are usually uh, understood as smaller institutions and and so on so there are uh, the terminologies the 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 the, the variance of the terminology also suggests that it's not not just one kind of institutions that we uh, we deal with when we think of medieval hospitals but certainly all of them were different in this fundamental aspect that they were not the place where you go when you want to uh, consult a specialist in in medicine so usually the, the, the so usually the doctor the doctors would visit the house if you could afford uh, one yes exactly i mean what they uh, dreamt about or what mm-hmm. was the ideal way of uh, being employed was as i already mentioned uh, to to live in the household uh, permanently oh, of, okay. a, of a, a nobleman or an ecclesiastic, a bishop. Uh, but if it was not possible, then and when they had to live from the market, one option was, of course, to teach. Okay. So university uh, doctors, uh, although they could have had. Uh, a practice, a practical aspect of of, uh, of their career, but they could just simply be theoreticians of, of medicine. In the north, many of them were were clerics uh, for a long while, at least. Uh, so, and then they lived on some uh, ecclesiastical stipend. Uh, and if not, then uh, and were not. Uh, retained in a big household and they had to live from the market and then uh, they catered for those who could pay for it. Very interesting. All right, so um, we've we've been talking a lot about um, medicine and medical history in the Middle Ages, so I guess um, since we're living in an area, uh, well, we're talking about an area, not living in it, um, before germ theory, um, how did uh, people think that? How did how did people get sick? <laughs> then, well, I mean, how did people get sick? Probably the same way as they do today. But how medieval medicine imagined that yes, people that's, got sick? That's what I meant. To ask. Uh, although <laughs> it's not evident that uh, getting sick was the same, because you know um, uh, germs can change. And they can appear and disappear. Um, so uh, diseases could be quite different, and it's difficult to tell whether a disease we know today was the same in the in the Middle Ages. In some cases, it's not that difficult. In the case of leprosy, for example, a, okay. a disease widely associated with the Middle Ages in its dark version mm-hmm. um, is uh, 
at least after a while. So he, if the patient did not die too early, then it it distorts enough the bones uh, that it can it's detectable and by archaeologists. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case with a flu, for example. I mean, whether the flu was the same flu. I mean, if somebody was sneezing, uh, and we learn in, in in a source uh, from a source that somebody was sneezing uh, regularly, frequently. Was it the flu we know or not? So it's not that that easy to to, to tell. So I mean, uh, nowadays even uh, uh, epidemiologists who try to, uh, from a natural scientific point of view, try to uh, create long-term patterns of disease transmission, disease history, um, are more cautious than they were in the past to say that. Uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a flu is, uh, I don't know how many years old and then mm-hmm. already the, I don't know, the the uh, the, the caveman in Neanderthal uh, already had a flu or not. So it's uh, <coughs> it's not so easy to, to tell. But uh, coming back rather to the, the perception, medical perception of, uh, of the causes of, of disease, mm-hmm. uh, we already touched on uh, humoral, theory and uh, and the, the 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 relevance of the four elementary qualities dry um, wet hot cold uh, in uh, in creating imbalances in the body and and making thus people ill because illness in medieval and in fact medieval medical tradition which in fact went back to hippocrates and uh, uh, to gallen so the to uh, to uh, to antique uh, ancient uh, medicine, Galen lived in the, in the second century after Christ, and uh, that he was the last big authority of uh, ancient medicine, at least for the medieval doctors. So, in in their point of view, um, illness was imbalance. So, the imbalance of the humors, imbalance of the elementary. <coughs> Qualities. This was a problem, in fact, uh, uh, when plague appeared, um, because uh, uh, medicine was very much individual. Mm-hmm. So um, balance is an individual balance. So each individual had individual balances, and this is why it is was useful not only from an economic point of view to live in a big household for a university-trained physician, but also from a theoretical point of view. It was justified uh, by exactly this individualistic aspect of of, uh, of medicine that uh, uh, the doctor had to know very much the members of the family or, or the patients. Uh, he, he tried to, uh, always a he, the mm-hmm. university-trained doctor, um, so he had to know the patients he had to he wanted to to heal because uh what is the balance he was supposed to uh uh, uh reconstitute was not evident so i mean you had to know the person and in the case of epidemics of course when uh people get sick in big masses then it's it's very difficult so i mean uh, one of the problems of the medical reactions to the plague was exactly this that uh, doctors were accustomed to uh prescribing lifestyles regimens advising on on lifestyle in individual cases and uh when 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 thousands or hundreds of thousands got sick in a short period of time it was not not an easy job for them. 
Right. I, I mean, especially when they're used to more sort of it, observing health from an internal rather than an external way. Well, I mean, the, that disease is an imbalance does not involve that it comes always from the inside. So uh, uh, it comes from mainly from the outside, but through... Uh, this this is this is why, for example, bathing was was important for the doctors that they they act on the body through uh, elementary qualities. So they they warm the body too much up, dry mm-hmm. it out, or parts of the body, the organs, and so on. So this is how the environment acts on 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 the body. So the uh, this is what the the doctor had to take into consideration how various environmental factors change these elementary qualities of the whole body or of the of an affected organ and this uh, this was how people got sick but the disease was not an entity not something that right. can be separated from the body that right, that's like like some harmful substance or a, or a harmful living creature that goes from body to body from person to person and it can be separated from it it's something different that can go in and come out and uh, and what uh, how we think of mm-hmm. illness in the first place no so so there is some evil thing that uh, goes into the body and then and leaves the body and goes into the an- another body this was not what they thought of or what they primarily thought of because there were such ideas already in in in, an, in antiquity so Galen also <coughs> considered what he called seeds of disease so that this metaphor that there are which is not very dif- very far from germ the germ idea mm-hmm. that there are seeds which can like like plants can disperse seeds ill persons can also leave sort of remnants of of the disease which can enter the body of others and another metaphor was poisoning mm. which was also current in in the in the middle ages that diseases the epidemics diseases especially are sort of poisons so that which can also travel from person to to, to person so there were other possibilities but and the, and the plague facilitated uh thinking about these other possibilities so uh, the seeds of disease uh, theory which was which comes up at certain points in the writings of of Galen but he himself did not think it uh, very relevant uh, became again if not fashionable yet but at least at least surfaced uh, from the depths of tradition uh, right in uh, at the eve of of uh, the black death so uh <clears throat> and then in the renaissance so uh in the renaissance in the 16th century also supported by atomism so the rediscovery of another uh, kind of natural philosophy different from aristotle's atomism ancient atomism because uh uh this, the thinking about the world as consisting of of little pieces undividable pieces of matter flying around <laughs> in a in a in a haphazard uh, way directed only by chance no no purpose this was more a more suitable metaphysics for thinking about diseases like that already in in, in antiquity in fact uh, atomist do- doctors with an atomist uh, natural philosophical foundation were more inclined to 
uh, accept or, or at least consider such a disease transmission model. Very interesting. Um, I have to ask about the black a, a little bit more about the Black Death. I mean, uh, well, one of the things that I have to ask is that I mean, I remember a couple of years back there was a new theory that um, as far as what the what the disease was that um, it was saying that making this claim that the Black Death in the middle in the 14th century was actually anthrax. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, for various reasons, sort of, uh, um, I mean, th there there was uh, all sorts of um, political uh, reasons uh, for that. But I, I have to ask your opinion. Um, do, do we have an idea of, uh, of what sort of pathogen the Black Death was at this point? Yes, this brings this question brings us back to to uh, the first question of this slot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when uh, you asked me about how people got sick in the Middle Ages, and mm -hmm. we, in fact, I mean, it, at first it sounds obvious that in the same way as we do, but it's not so obvious. And uh, the the plague was or is one of the most nowadays, at least, the most uh, debated example of of this uncertainty about uh, whether medieval people got the same disease when they talked about plague because i mean even when they, what they talked about is not so easy thing because uh, they talked about uh, uh, pestilentia and epidemia and 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 and, uh, and another and a number of other uh, disease names and uh, so they seem to have been that even between themselves a bit unsure about the exact identity of the disease in, in also the, it posed problems in um, putting it into their scheme of diseases which was partly inherited from from ancient uh, Greek and Roman mainly Greek medicine and also uh, from Arabic medicine <coughs> but uh, uh, coming back to the to the contemporary debates one of the positions is that uh, it may have been anthrax uh, and not the disease what we know today as plague which is caused by Yersinia pestis mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, an, uh, a germ discovered uh, in the uh, 1890s uh, 1890s um, in in Hong Kong uh, during the uh, the big uh, outbreak of plague in in southern asia which reached even uh, the west coast of briefly of the west coast of of the us mm. but it uh, in the end did not uh, lead to a global epidemic to a pandemic uh, but it was the point where uh, med uh, or european medicine uh, was already not, in, not not only european because in fact the japanese were also very much involved in researching uh, uh, the the cause of this uh, 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 disease, the the germ uh, behind it, and then uh, uh, <coughs> uh, in a in a in a in, in a fierce contest with the Japanese counterpart, uh, the the Swiss um, researcher Andre Yersen succeeded to to identify first uh, the the germ of the of plague and this is why 
later on it was named uh, after him. Um, yes, yeah, very, d- very dubious honor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so now, now it's we can in our own medical system we can easily identify plague through its uh, its cause, but. Uh, whether this was the cause behind medieval plague, this is really a, a problem because uh, what we have to rely on are contemporary descriptions, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary diagnosis. And uh, the, the problem is that there is no, no clear tradition of plague diagnosis before, in contrast, for example, to leprosy. Mm-hmm. So in the Middle Ages, uh, at least in the period when there was already university medicine, when the, the, the Arabic... Uh, authorities like Avicenna were already translated, then uh, doctors knew a great deal, at least in their own terms, uh, they knew a great deal of, about leprosy. So there was a big body of, of uh, literature about it and, and the, the how to di- make the diagnosis and so on and so forth. But they had not much experience with plague. So plague, whatever it was, mm-hmm. nothing similar appeared in, 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 in Europe between the 6th century and, uh, and uh, the 14th. So uh, the Justinianic plague was the last big epidemic, let's say, uh, Europe-wide epidemic. In, in the 6th century. Yeah. So they had not much experience with uh, with plague, and it was even doctors were a bit unsure how to describe it, how, where to put it in their own system, and then there were of course the other uh, uh, the witnesses, uh, chroniclers in the first place, and uh, who were may have been a bit knowledgeable in medicine, but not necessarily so. So we have many descriptions not necessarily uh, uh, coherent between themselves and uh, this and and all all descriptions are from a point of view which is very different from ours so it's it's difficult to identify it. and really there there is this anthrax hypothesis uh, and there are there is also the the mixture of diseases hypothesis that uh, what was the plague was in fact a number of diseases, maybe different waves of plague were different diseases, and even w- in, within one wave, like the Black Death, which is, was just a first in medieval Europe, because then until the 18th century, depends on which area of Europe, in, 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 uh, in Britain until the 17th, and in, in uh, Eastern Europe until the late 18th or even early 19th century, uh, there were many subsequent waves of of something called plague mm-hmm. uh, so big epidemics in many respects similar with uh, these swellings the buboes which g- gave it the name of bubonic plague these were uh, recurrent elements of the description so buboes men and many people dying maybe mm-hmm. these are the 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 most uh, uh <coughs> constant elements so uh um the anthrax hypothesis is one of the alternatives to the Yersinia pestis continuity. One of the problems usually raised again uh, in connection with this is that uh, one would expect in the case of a big anthrax ep- epidemic that uh, that cattle die too and they and cattle didn't die. 
So mm. I mean, uh, anthrax is something usually affects uh, the animals uh, too. I mean, it's 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 a originally an animal uh, disease. So this is what is usually raised against, and not necessarily a good counter argument. There can be many kinds of anthrax and so on and so forth, but this is that it is sometimes raised. And uh, a similar argument can be, in fact, raised against uh, the continuity of the Yersinia pestis because the Yersinia pestis is usually connected with rats. This is, again, right. yes. be- it belongs to the, to, the, to the canonic image of medieval plague, you know, that rats everywhere, and, and it connects well with uh, this dirty Middle Ages uh, image. Um, but in fact, there are no descriptions of rats dying. Rats should die. Uh, I mean, uh, when there are plague outbreaks today, mm-hmm. because there are in, in Africa and in India, uh, then uh, then rats do die. So there are, there is a, a, a count counterpart of the epidemic in in uh, uh, in the uh, among rats too. Um, so the when when the rat population is infected to after beyond a certain level, then they start to die in masses. And we don't have such descriptions from the Middle Ages uh, of, di- of rats dying, <coughs> which, I mean, one one possible uh, counter-argument against, I don't want to go into the <laughs> details of this debate, but counter, that... Counter-counter-counter-counter-counter-counter <laughs> that, uh, that some, some, uh, some proponents of the of the Yersinia pestis you say that uh, yes of course because people are so much accustomed to the presence of rats that uh, rats dying or rats doing anything was not relevant for them so it's 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 a complicated issue but what we have to uh, keep in mind is that it's really difficult to yeah. to identify uh, uh, diseases of the past in in modern terms and I mean, they, they, there was a lot of recording going on, but at the same time, if one third of the people you know are dying, I don't think it would really be. I don't know. I have a hard time seeing, you know, someone saying one third of the people in the city died today, and also the rats did too. <laughs> so it's it's a very tricky issue. Well, the rats should come first. So I mean, uh, and it's uh, uh, the medieval doctors developed a, a detailed list of of signs of a coming plague, and the rats are never among these signs. Huh. So there are many signs related, first of all, to uh, to weather phenomena, to changes in winds and and temperature and and humidity and so on and so forth, and also flies dying, for example mass death of flies that's that's frequently mentioned but no mass mass death of of rats of course mass death of flies is related first of all to the to the general explanation of of plague or of epidemics in general mm-hmm. uh, namely that epidemics uh, are caused by uh, a change in the substance of the air um, a kind of a rottening of the air putrefaction of the air and uh, well, the mass death of flies can simply be a speculative uh, sign uh, that was simply deduced from the from the idea that uh, the the air is becoming putrefied, becoming rotten, becoming uh, somehow corrupted, and this is why flies die or flies should die if the air becomes corrupted because they are the ones who are affected first. 
by this corrupted air. But, uh, well, this is a question of how much empirical validity we attribute to medieval descriptions. All right. Well, uh, winding down our discussion a little bit, I have to... Um, we, we've had a very fascinating talk today about uh, uh, medical history in the Middle Ages, and I... Um, I, I have to ask, um, what sort of new directions do you see uh, in terms of research of the field? Well, medical history in the uh, of the Middle Ages and in, in general in the last couple of decades tended to become more mainstream than it was before. So medical history is something that uh, in a professional uh, form uh, started uh, around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, mainly in Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, then it spread uh, uh, to other parts of the world. Professional medical history was done initially by doctors. Uh, one of the founding fathers, Karl Zutov, uh, was practicing practicing doctor for a while, and then he. Uh, he had then later on the financial means and uh, and, and also um, before that he, he made it like a hobby so he was mm-hmm. conducting research like a hobby and then uh, uh, after a while he got uh, the first uh, uh, chair in, in, in med- medical history in, in the world in Leipzig uh, in Germany and then uh, well, he also had uh, by that time at least uh, the financial means of, of leaving his uh, his uh, professional medical career and and uh, changing for uh, uh, medical medical history, mm-hmm. and then uh, this kind of medical history done by doctors. Uh, I'm talking about professional medical history because mm-hmm. some sort of medical history is still done by uh, doctors, uh, doctors after retirement and mm-hmm. doctors uh, as a hobby, and uh, and this is usually not as professional in terms of uh, uh, historical skills, source criticism, and the general knowledge of knowledge of the relevant languages and so on and so forth. I see. Um, but uh, this professional form, which was also done by doctors who then stopped being doctors in the proper sense and, and turned to medical history, this lasted uh, until roughly the 60s, one can say, that uh, the leading figures were initially doctors and then moved to the field of medical history and and from the 60s onwards medical history started to open up in many ways and uh, one of this was that uh, that um, that the the concerns uh, were widening to involve not only the intellectual history of uh, medicine that the uh, doctor thought this in that period and that in another period but uh, to uh, uh, connect trends in, first of all, in, in intellectual history, but also in of, of medicine, but also in medical care to broader social currents, uh, um, which were understood on the one hand as as influencing medicine, so that, uh, for example, the, how the plague, the Black Death, especially changed the profession in terms of what people expected from doctors, what doctors thought they uh, can reasonably do, 
how did they changed also the 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 constitution of the of the profession in terms of the personal so i mean many of them died and and mm -hmm. and it created uh, demographic changes within the uh, profession um uh, so it's one kind of question how the social environment affects medical thinking and medical practice and on the other hand how medicine involve uh, is involved and and uh, uh, and influences general ideas like gender so it's uh, gender history uh, in the last couple of decades was very much influenced by medical history medical ideas were taken into consideration in 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 gender and not only in gender i mean if we think of uh, the work of michel foucault mm. uh, where in which uh, medical history has a central place and uh, the whole inquiry of of foucault Involves first of all uh, ways of uh, of disciplining uh, society in uh, terms of uh, changing prison system or uh, various ways of governing people and so on and so forth, and uh, this general interest in disciplining, governing, uh, ruling was very much connected to to medicine because medicine is a way uh, of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, making various uh, prescriptions to people which they may not be willing to do right and <laughs> uh, the term medicalization which was invented in the 60s uh, conveys this meaning of of medicine that medicine is a sort of can be understood at least as a sort of authority that uh, on the one hand extends gradually its its uh, its uh, its competency from uh, initially rather narrow field to almost everything if you if you think of forensic medicine this was start, it started already in the middle ages that doctors were involved in crime cases and mm. they had to um, testify about uh, whether the the person was killed or not or by a knife or, or and so on and so forth and then uh, extending it to all aspects of sexual life if you think of viagra <laughs> uh, it's a medicalization of uh, of, of, of sexuality that it's something uh, I mean uh, sexuality becomes a medical medical problem that uh, you have to turn to doctors I mean or, or childbirth oh yeah is another case uh, in point where you uh, you see that uh, something which is not a disease or nothing I mean at first sight should not have nothing to do with doctors are completely involved in the competence of, of uh, doctors and they they tell how to do it, and then the state, step by step, uh, uh, is aligned with the doctors, and they make these prescriptions sort of uh, law or, uh, or legally binding uh, rules. So uh, <clears throat> these aspects of medical history became very important, and as a consequence, medical history became much broader than it was when uh, at the beginning of the century 20th century, uh, these medically trained experts were focusing on the intellectual history of medicine, and now it it involves all aspects of social life in a back and forth influence between medicine and the and the environment. Huh. Sounds like a growing field. Yes, it is. I, mm -hmm. I think. Alrighty. Well. Um on that note, I think we're going to have to uh, conclude today's uh, broadcast. Thank you very much for joining us You're today. You're welcome. It was, a, it was a pleasure having you. Now, um, 
for the listeners out there, visit us uh, at medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Um, if you want, send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu, or uh, be sure to visit our Facebook page. Um, thank you once again, Dr. Getcher. You're welcome. And um, you all take care.